Don't ask a question that you don't already know the answer to. Now, I know questions are generally about trying to find answers for things that we don't know, but I like to watch lawyer shows, and that seems to be one of the rules in lawyer shows, is that you never ask something that you don't know what the witness is going to say. Now, within a court of law, lawyers do that for a reason. They, they're trying to persuade a jury and a courtroom and a judge to all come to a conclusion that they want everyone to believe. And so every question is designed to move you to a point where you're going to agree with whatever position that lawyer might be taking. I think it's a good way of looking at how the scribes and the Pharisees are approaching Jesus on this day, that everything that is happening, they have set up to help move the crowd to a certain position, to help move us along to see their position to, to see Jesus in a certain light. They have set us a trap. In fact, the text even tells us that they've set a trap. They said this to test him so that they might have some charge to bring against him. Because they know the answers to all of their questions. They know that the woman is guilty. They know what the law says that uh, should happen to this, to this woman. And they even know what Jesus is going to say. They know that somehow Jesus is going to try to weasel out of doing what they think the law requires. They seek to trap him, to trick him, and to saying what he, they know he wants to say. And they almost succeed in doing it. In fact, the plan is pretty perfect. Now, it's one of these stories, though, that requires us not to ask too many questions of our own. We don't need to get into how they know that the woman committed adultery, or why, or where was the man in this situation. This is one of those sins where it really does take two to tango. Those are questions that really the story isn't concerned about because it's not really about the woman. The story is about the trap that be, is being set for Jesus. And so these unanswerable questions just distract us from what is happening. But because this is a trap for Jesus, I do kind of love his response. Jesus hears their accusation. This crowd is waiting to see what he is going to do. And so he bends down and starts playing in the dirt. This doesn't quite see, seem like the reaction we're used to from Jesus. He's almost ignoring them. And that doesn't mean that he doesn't care about the plight of this woman or the charges that have been filed against her. I think he's giving this, these, uh, this group that has brought this woman just the kind of attention that he thinks they deserve for this trap that they have set. And so they keep pressing. They know he eventually he'll crack and he'll say what they want him to. And so they press and they press and finally Jesus stands up and turns to them, and they're eagerly awaiting their response, eagerly awaiting these words that they can then use to trap him, to arrest him, to file charges against him. And he, he tells them, You who is free of sin, go ahead and cast the first stone. I wonder how long it took them to figure out exactly what Jesus had said. I'm sure there were a few snuck or smirks right off the front saying we finally got him but then as they started to think about these words 
Slowly, one by one, the crowd started walking away. First with those who had brought the charges and then the rest, so that all that was then left was Jesus and this woman, and Jesus had gone back to playing in the dirt, waiting for them to leave, and he stands up again and he turns to the woman and says to her, has no one condemned you? No, Lord, no one. Then neither do I go on your way. The trap has been set. It should have worked. The leaders here are seeking to pit Jesus, a teacher of the law, against the very law that he claims to teach. And they know something about Jesus because they have heard him teach, they have seen him heal, that they know that he could not go along with what they were proposing. The plan should have worked. But it didn't. And it didn't work because Jesus ignored the traditions or the scriptures. It didn't work because Jesus refused to use this woman as the pawn and their story and their trap. Instead, turned the whole thing around onto them. Because he didn't plead or beg. He didn't try to compromise. He didn't point to their need for mercy. Instead, he gives them the okay to do exactly what they want to do, but with one stipulation, that the first person who casts the stone is free from sin themselves. That's a story of great mercy. In her book, uh, Claiming the Beatitudes, Anne Sutherland Howard shares a story of Anne and her journey to learn what mercy is. Sorry, April. April was a seminary student in Columbus, Ohio, and she worked at a church that sat on the railroad tracks. And if you know anything about these particular railroad tracks, this is the kind of place where that phrase, living on the other side of the tracks, was written. Because on one side of these tracks are affluent communities, large houses, well-kept. And on the other side of the tracks are, are those buildings that are boarded up, that are worn down. The kind of places that you really don't want to go at night. And so this church that April worked at was on the good side of the tracks. And there would always be this uh, people that would cross the tracks coming to this church looking for help. And April, being the caring kind of person that she was, would always seek to offer help where she could. Which oftentimes meant helping to connect them with other social ministry organizations or charities that, that knew how to help people who needed certain things. But there was always this wall of separation that she had put up. She knew the kind of people that lived over there. And she also knew that if they had just acted more like she did, they probably wouldn't be in that situation to begin with. If they had just made better choices with their life, if they had just acted more righteous, if they were just more like her, then everything would be okay for them. It's a wall that continued to be put up with each new encounter until one day Laura had walked into the church. 
Laura was a little different. She kind of looked like those people that lived over there. She kind of acted like those people who lived over there, except there was one difference. She lived only a few doors down from where April lived. And there was a first crack in that wall because then April thinks, well, this is my actual neighbor. I have a a right, a responsibility to help her. And so she doesn't refer Laura off to another group. She decides to take Laura under her own wings, that she's going to be the one who fixes her, that helps her get her life figured out. And so she begins to try to find all these ways that she can change Laura to be the person that she needs to be to fix and straighten up her life. Of course, this process was a little frustrating for April. She then soon discovered that Laura still made all of the same mistakes, that at every turn when, when, when there are two possibilities, she picks the worst of them, and that fixing someone was not as easy as she thought it would be. But April's world began to change with all of these encounters and interactions with Laura, and in the end, it was April who changed the most, because she began to see in Laura a fuller and a deeper story. And she began to see that that at every point in Laura's life, when she made a mistake, there was never a second chance. Every time Laura made a mistake, she bared the full consequences of her actions. She was never given the benefit of the doubt because of the community she grew up in, the family she came from. There was never mercy or grace in her life. She had grown up in a home with abusive parents, a home without love. And it seems so counter from the, the home that April grew up with, with loving parents and second and third and fourth chances where she could make mistakes and learn from them and grow, and they wouldn't impact all of the rest of her life. So it reached a point where April decided that she was going to quit trying to fix Laura and instead love her, instead show her mercy, instead offer second and third and fourth chances, all these opportunities that she had that Laura had never experienced. In short, she was going to act a little bit more like Jesus in this story. A little bit more like these Beatitudes describe, that blessed are the merciful, for they have received mercy. That when you know what mercy looks like, it's so much easier to reflect that out and to share that love and kindness with others. Now, I don't know how the story between Laura and April ends. For all I know, it continues. Which is a great thing because that's what exactly what we get in this story with Jesus as well. We don't know how this story ends. All we know is how Jesus sends this woman off. Who is here to condemn you? No one, Lord. Then neither do I. Go forth and sin no more. Now, many might want to look at that final phrase of go forth and sin no more as kind of Jesus saying, don't ever do this again because there is no other chance. You commit this same act and all hope is lost. And I don't think that's what Jesus is saying at all. This is words of hope and promise as he sends her out. 
that she is given a new opportunity, that she is given a new life, that, and that she's given opportunity to go and to show mercy to others. And as this story ends but doesn't end, because we wonder what happens to this woman, we wonder what happens to this crowd, because they have been shown mercy too. Because Jesus has pointed back to them and said, you know, every finger you point at this woman, you are failing to look at the sin in your own life. You are failing to recognize your own need for mercy and God's love and forgiveness as well. And they are given a great gift that day as well as they are taught to show mercy as they understand the role of God's care in their own lives. But maybe at the moments they need forgiveness and love that they have received it. So the challenge that Jesus gives, the challenge for us and the story that continues in all of our lives because I don't think at times we are all that different from those who bring this woman before Jesus. We are just as good at looking and pointing fingers and trying to find the people around us to blame for all of the world's problems without ever recognizing that we are in the same need of God's care, that we need to receive God's mercy just as much as anyone else around us. That the story continues for us, that we are sent back into the world, not condemned that Jesus has not thrown a stone at us, but sent us out that we might bear witness to God's love, God's mercy, God's forgiveness to those around us as well. Because I think the craziest part in this whole story is that when these scribes and Pharisees come to Jesus, this is what they expect him to do. And that's what makes them so mad. That they really don't want love and mercy for these people that seem so different. And sometimes I don't think we're all that different. We don't always want the love and mercy that Jesus offers for those around us who hurt us, who hurt our communities. But in the end, it is Jesus who traps them. Who traps them and his, his sacrifice, his death and resurrection, him taking up their burdens, and this trap is one that they can't escape from, that they cannot escape his love and mercy, even if it's what they are pushing against and rejecting. And that is the good news for us. That this mercy of God comes not because we have earned anything. Because it is Jesus who has trapped us. And his love and care. Amen.